What does comfort sound like? What does home feel like? On today's episode, we explore the nourishment that our communities give us, the ways in which a familiar sound or scent can transport us, how even thousands of miles away from the motherland, they can immediately bring us home. Hi, I'm Abril Sawarsa Rivera, and you're listening to Love in Public. Welcome back to another episode. Today, I'm joined by Phoebe Ferrer and Dr. J.P. Katungal. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit more about them. Dr. J.P. Katungal is a professor at UBC's Social Justice Institute and interim director for the Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Studies program. A critical human geographer by training, his work thrives at the intersections of many disciplines. Some of his research interests include Filipinx and Asian Canadian studies, anti-racist and queer community organizing, and the politics of education and mentorship. Although the world of academia can often feel far removed from the subjects it concerns itself with, something that continually impresses me about Dr. Katungal's work is how deeply and actively connected it has remained to the communities at the center of his research. Phoebe Ferrer is a Vancouver-based researcher and poet who recently graduated with a Master of Arts degree in political science from UBC. Her research interests include studying migration policy and identity formation within Filipino diasporic communities. Through her creative writing, Phoebe strives to honor both the joy and pain, resilience and separation that coexist in diasporic stories. She doesn't know it, but Phoebe walked into my life when I stumbled upon her Twitter. I remember thinking, wow, this person has such important things to say when it comes to what it's like to be an immigrant in this country, and she expresses herself with such empathy, intellect, and grace. How are the both of you doing today? Pretty good. Doing good, thank yeah. you. <laughs> it's very warm here. There is a bit of a heat wave happening, so um, it reminds me actually of the Philippines, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's but without the aircon. I wish we had the aircon. <laughs> I want to say how thankful I am to the both of you because you're tuning in, and it's close to 11 p.m. in Vancouver tonight. So I know that that would be quite an ask for me. So I'm not taking it for granted. Thanks so much for being here. There's a lot that I want to talk about today, but before we dive into the local or the global, I do want to start with something a bit more personal. I love hearing about people's origin stories, and lately I've been thinking a lot about the power of a name. I was reading this article recently in the CBC, specifically about how Filipino names are often imbued with connections to family, culture, and colonization. Even the use of a nickname like JP can often be a sign of kinship and affection. I wonder if either of your names or nicknames hold ties back to your ancestral geographies. And of course, if there isn't a story behind it, I'd still love to hear about your connection to the Philippines. Um, so my last name is a last name that, that often throws people. It is not a Spanish last name, which is common in the Philippines because of Spanish colonialism. Uh, it is a last name that is very regionally specific. Both sets of my grandparents uh, are from Pangasinan, which is a province in the like northern region of the Philippines. Um, and so I grew up in Manila. I lived in Manila till I was 14 before my family came to Vancouver as immigrants. Um, and you know, growing up in Manila with this last name 
uh, that people often mispronounce in the Philippines, uh, Katungal instead of Katunggal, which is the latter is what it would be, um, or how my family would say it. Um, the unfamiliarity is related to the fact that it is not a common Spanish last name. So that's one component of it. And then John Paul um, is, you know, a very clearly religious name. Um, I was named after Pope John Paul II, who visited the Philippines on his first trip to Asia as Pope uh, in the early 1980s. And I was born in the mid-1980s. Um, and my grandparents, uh, my grandma on my dad's side particularly, insisted uh, that I be named after the Pope. So again, Catholicism, um, a religion that I have very complicated relationships with now, uh, given my queerness, give, given colonialism, and given settler colonialism in Canada, right? I always say that I cannot escape this Catholicism. It's, you know, this is a family history. And this is also a, uh, the, you know, to a large degree, the history of the Philippines. Uh, and I bear it in my name. Um, JP is a name that um, a lot of people call me, but it's not what my family calls me. Um, Paul is what my family calls me. And I will, I will only reply to family who call me Paul. Everyone else, it feels weird for them to call me Paul, but my family is allowed. So there's something intimate about that. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I have an Indonesian first name and a, a Mexican first name, and my brother and my dad are the only people that can call me that Indonesian name, and it feels right and it feels intimate. Um, yeah, Phoebe, I'm, I'm curious to hear about your name and, and the story behind it. So my full name is Phoebe Manel Mana'ogferer. And each part has like um, a different uh, meaning to it, I suppose. Um, unlike JP, my last name does come from Spain. Um, famously, the Spanish came to the Philippines with this uh, very big book of surnames uh, that was distributed or distributed, uh, imposed more like on the local population. And Ferrer is one of them I realized recently. Though for me, um, my grandfather on my father's side, his grandfather is directly from Spain. So that's where my Ferrer comes from. But lots of other folks are also called Ferrer as a result of those Spanish names being imposed on uh, now Filipino populations um, in the Philippines. So that's Ferrer. Um, Manaog is my mother's maiden name. Um, and this is also something that I've always found interesting about Filipino names. Um, the mother's maiden name is usually taken as a middle name whereas it's not as common, um, in, especially in North America. Um, and I've always found myself explaining that. Um, but I also like to keep it as part of my name because it is my, my mom's name and um, shows her connection to, she's from Montalban, um, Rizal, and shows her ancestral connection back to the Philippines. And then my first name, uh, Phoebe Minnell. Uh, so like many other Filipino folks, I have two first names. Uh, Phoebe comes from the Bible. Uh, as it usually is. Um, uh, it also has Greek origins, which is uh, part of the reason I think my mom picked it, but it was mostly because it's from the Bible. Um, and it's a little bit unique because my mom's version of the Bible had Phoebe without an O in it. So like a lot of people spell my name usually with an O and I usually have to correct them like 
actually, no, there's no O in it uh, because my mom picked this very specific version of it from a very specific version of the Bible. Um, and then Manel, um, actually quite like a lot of the names in the article that you mentioned, is a mashup of my parents' names. Uh, so Miriam and Neil put together. Um, and so I was actually very interested uh, when I saw Dr. Manel Matani. I realized like, oh, it's actually like a name that other folks have, because um, I thought it was just like my parents' names put together. Um, but yeah, and uh, nicknames. Uh, growing up, I was called Min Min. That's what a lot of my childhood friends called me, and that's what my parents called me. And at a certain point, uh, when I grew up, I think I was around 16, they stopped calling me that. And it just felt very jarring, uh, because they started calling me Phoebe and stuff like that. And I remember like, oh, but am I not still Min Min at home? Um, and it was just kind of like, oh, maybe you're a little bit too old for that now. Um, but yeah, like, I guess when I was a kid, I was Min Min, but now I'm Phoebe. It's funny how asking someone about their name or names can tell you so much about them. One of the things that I hope I can do with this podcast and the conversations we have on here is to make topics and themes in social justice more accessible to those who are unfamiliar with them. I remember when I first got to UBC, there were moments where I felt intimidated and I wince a little bit as I say this because I was in environments where I didn't feel quote unquote woke enough or socially aware enough. And luckily, since then, I've been able to let the humility back in and realize that I'm here to learn. And that's very much the intention that I want to carry into this conversation. I want to dive into a topic that's very close to my heart and I can imagine is even closer to yours. And that is Filipino migrant labor. I grew up in a Gulf country in the Middle East where there was always a huge number of Filipino domestic workers, nurses, bus drivers, immigrants who had come to offer their work in order to send their wages back home in the form of remittances. And I was always struck by these livelihoods that were driven by selflessness. I know there's no single story, but I would love it if you could explain what is it that drives these individuals to leave their home country and what can they expect to find or experience when they find work in these receiving countries? Um, maybe uh, if it's okay, I can start. Uh, emigration from the Philippines, uh, particularly labor emigration, started in the 1970s um, with the labor export policy, which was implemented by then president and also then dictator Ferdinand Marcos. And essentially what this policy did was that it formalized the labor immigration of Filipinos uh, from the Philippines to places like the Middle East, to the North America, to Europe, and so on. Um, and what's so striking about this policy is that it really, like I said, formalized the process of this. So uh, an office was created to facilitate the labor, labor export, sorry. Uh, which is called the Philippine Overseas Employment Administration. Um, government structures were put in place. So there is an office in each of the receiving countries, which informs incoming migrant workers of their rights, of their privileges, of what they can't or cannot do, what they can or can't do. Um, and some common streams of migration, for example, include construction workers in the Middle East, nurses in the US, in the Europe, in North America in general, and domestic workers, particularly in Canada. And since then, since the implementation of the labor export policy, um, it's become a signature of the Philippines and it's become something that the Philippines is well known for as a nation. 
um, to the uh, point that one of the past presidents, I believe it was Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, once said that she is the head or the CEO of a large corporation which is in charge of labor export. And this policy, this structural part is also reinforced with kind of a resulting and self-reinforcing cultural uh, push to leave the country. Um, and the common narrative is that, you know, there's not enough employment in the Philippines, um, there's not enough opportunities to be able to support your family, and that it's much better to go abroad because when you send remittances, which is money sent back by migrants to their families, um, it actually becomes more in pesos because of the exchange rate and stuff like that. Um, and this is a common experience for a lot of Filipino families. My grandfather, for example, used to be a seafarer, um, and which eventually enabled my family, like my, my father and my uncles to eventually go abroad and uh, start their lives abroad. And that was enabled by my grandfather first going abroad in order to like earn that money. So there is that mix of like a government structure that was put in place, but also this self-reinforcing cultural push. Um, so also that's a little bit simplistic, I would say, um, to just reduce it to that too, but yeah. Yeah, I want to echo what Phoebe said, and I have in my hand here like a fabulous book um, by Robin Magalit Rodriguez called Migrants for Export. Um, and Phoebe uh, summarized um, a, a good chunk of the book already in terms of like the formation of this government structure, um, this history of like a structural push, a policy, uh, and the accompanying bureaucratic infrastructure to support. Um, the export of Filipinos as migrant workers abroad uh, and depending on gender, depending on region, um, you know, there are different kind of narratives, but a very common one, and I want to piggyback particularly on the cultural aspects that Phoebe talked about. Uh, there is a public narrative um, supported by the media, but also reproduced in everyday life by people of migrants as heroes, right? Bagumbayani is the phrase that is used often to refer to migrant workers, right? New heroes that, you know, that are supposed to kind of uplift uh, the, the country through their work abroad. So um, that cultural construction of Filipinos abroad as migrant workers is really important for that push that Phoebe was talking about, right? Uh, that is a, a really important narrative uh, that undergirds um, this pattern uh, of some 10 to 12% of the population being abroad at any given time. Uh, and that, that, that doesn't even you know, count, that doesn't include the folks who have become citizens abroad uh, I don't think that number is just about Filipino citizens who are working abroad in the specific uh, category of migrant workers. Right. You both have spoken about this push that that drives the, the Filipino migrant to leave. And I wonder about the other end of, of this journey, the other side of the, the migrant story, because I know that a lot of these Filipinos will leave the country and then face a very precarious immigrant status once they get to the next. And I'd, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, um, I think I'll particularly speak from the Canadian perspective since I, that's what I'm most familiar with. But yeah, okay. once um, Filipino market workers come over, uh, they face a number of challenges, including, for example, there's racism, there is classism, there is um, the need to find stable employment in order to keep sending remittances back to the Philippines. Um, and just here, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, so remittances, like I mentioned earlier, is the money that migrants send back to their families uh, in the Philippines, though also um, all migrant workers, um, wherever they may be from, uh, do send remittances. And the Philippines is one of the top countries, um, I believe that the third top after India and China in terms of the remittance dollars that are sent. To the extent that I believe in, like during the pandemic, around $30 billion was sent back by migrant workers. Um, and that becomes, a, that is partly the reason for coming abroad to earn that money to send it back. And it also becomes a pressure for um, uh, migrant workers because uh, immigration policies are difficult to uh, go through and finding that stable employment in order to keep sending that money um, may also be difficult as we've seen especially during the pandemic um, and it that is also compounded with just the issues of being um, someone foreign in Canada being a person of color uh, being in industries for example uh, domestic caregiving um, uh, the meatpacking industry uh, agricultural and farm workers um, in jobs that are seen as less valuable or less um, worthy of care or like, or attention, um, jobs that are commonly said that, you know, Canadians don't want them. So we fill them with migrant workers. Um, but we've seen, especially with the pandemic, that uh, the conditions in these industries are not great. And um, in fact, dangerous for a lot of migrant workers. Um, so it becomes a whole mix of those uh, things. I feel like I rambled a little bit there. No, no, not at all. Phoebe, I love that you have brought up <laughs> the COVID situation. The last thing that I want to talk about most of the time is this pandemic. But as you've mentioned, a lot of Filipino immigrants are working in the healthcare industry, uh, long-term care for the elderly. And I can't help but think that if they were facing vulnerabilities before, the COVID situation can't have done anything but exacerbate them. What do you feel that this pandemic has revealed uh, about the contributions of Filipino workers? And this, JP, if you'd like to answer this. Yeah, I can uh, deal with this question. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly made clear just how important racialized workers are um, to the, you know, the basic running uh, of the Canadian economy um, in many sectors, including in healthcare, for sure. Uh, but also in other sectors like uh, food uh, services, agriculture, uh, elder care, um, you know, uh, caregiving more broadly. Um, and it also revealed to me just how um, undervalued and undercut these, uh, these workers have been. Um, undervalued both in terms of um, not only pay, but also in terms of, you know, the, the work that is ascribed to them um, and to the work that they do. Um, one of the things that the COVID-19 pandemic has made crystal clear to me 
is how easily scapegoated workers are, um, particularly racialized workers, particularly women, particularly migrant workers, um, you know, as scapegoats for COVID-19. So in the Vancouver context and in other parts of Canada, for example, in the early parts of the pandemic, um, women, including many Filipino women who work in long-term care homes, um, often, you know, they had to, they've had to cobble part-time jobs, multiple part-time jobs in multiple long-term care homes in order to make ends meet. And therefore, they were shuttling from space to space, from like care home to care home. They, you know, were blamed for uh, for uh, the spread of COVID-19. Without that structural picture of why they needed to cobble together jobs in the first place because of the precariousness of the jobs that, you know, have been available to them prior to COVID. Instead, the narrative came to be about how uncaring they are, that they're after the money, right? Um, it became culturalized as a kind of uncaring trait of these women, right? This also reared its head in the context of um, the meatpacking um, cluster and infections. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly about the Cargill meat plant in Alberta, where the Minister of Health blamed migrant workers. So not just a lot, there are a lot of Filipinos who work at Cargill, but also uh, Mexican and uh, Thai, if I are Vietnamese uh, workers, if I remember correctly. Um, they blamed these workers for carpooling together for having multiple families living in the same home um, without understanding the structural picture of things like affordability, access to transportation, these kinds of things, right? Instead, the narrative became, look at how unable these racialized people are to follow regulations, right? So there, on the one hand, we have, you know, this elevation of particular classes of people as essential workers. We applaud for them 7 p.m., right? And on the other hand, there is this accompanying scapegoating uh, of these folks. So that is what the COVID-19 pandemic laid bare to me. Um, this is not new. Many in our community know this already, right? Inside our bones, right? These are family stories, right? But I think uh, the pandemic has required a public reckoning or at least, you know, produce a public visibility around these issues. I can tell how, how deeply personal this is for you. And I appreciate you painting a picture for me of the everyday struggle, but also of this structural image that a lot of that is invisible to a lot of people. When I think about the situation uh, regarding Filipino migrant labor, I think about their role within the global care industry and the fact that they are providing care for many in the global north and that they are sending back this money for their families. And that is also a form of care. And I just think to myself, who is caring for these workers? I also think that with Canada and this rose-tinted ideology of multiculturalism, a lot of people think, yeah, well, immigrants have it bad in a lot of countries. They might be in precarious situations elsewhere, but that's not happening here in Canada. Do you think that we need to challenge this narrative? And 
I wonder if you've come across specific barriers and hardships that exist for Filipino immigrants and members of the Filipino diaspora here in Canada. I know you've touched upon a few already. Absolutely. We need to challenge that narrative. Um, the narrative of multiculturalism is one that really hides a lot of the pressures and challenges for a lot of immigrants coming into Canada and the structural racism and white supremacy that exists at the heart of the Canadian state. Um, and it veils it in this rosy, uh, like you said, the rose tinted glasses of, oh, let's all hold hands and enjoy one another's culture. Um, so absolutely, we do need to um, challenge that narrative and say that this is the real facts of what immigrants, particular Filipino immigrants, Vietnamese, um, Mexican immigrants are experiencing um, in Canada. And we need to contend with that um, now that the pandemic has been one of the lenses that we're using to really shine a light on all of these challenges. And in terms of... Um, the everyday struggles for Filipino immigrants. Um, I would say that I can only speak to this um, peripherally since I myself, um, I don't see myself as an immigrant for um, some reasons. Like uh, I came into this, uh, came into Canada uh, with my family, uh, with my dad who is a diplomat, uh, which is a little bit of a different um, migration story. So I can only really speak to what I've seen with my friends and what they have experienced. But some of it, for example, for a lot of second gen um, uh, folks is the loss of culture and loss of language. Um, one common story that I hear uh, amongst my friends is not learning Tagalog or not learning um, Bisaya, Cebuano, or the languages that they, their parents grew up speaking because their parents had thought they would succeed better in Canada without having an accent, without using this language because in any case you'll use English in your everyday why do you need um, uh, Tagalog or otherwise um, and I can see this is a one of the um, one of the uh, challenges for a lot of second gen folks that is symptomatic of a larger um, challenge which is that a lot of for example first generation immigrants come here in order to work and to uh, earn those uh, money for remittances um, and to send it back to family. And it is largely a story of survival. Um, and so when second generation uh, folks um, start growing up and learning about their culture, there is that barrier between what do you need to survive versus what do you need to thrive kind of thing. In the mind of a lot of first gen folks, uh, from what my friends have told me, you know, that's English, that is going to get a Canadian education. Um, whereas a lot of folks that are born here want to learn more about where their parents came from and um, the languages and, and cultures that are associated with that. Yeah, I can add a couple of things to kind of the picture of the effects of uh, immigration and what it looks like in terms of everyday life. I have a little bit of a kind of intimate relationship to this question, um, in part because, you know, several people in my family came to Canada through the caregiver program. Uh, I have an aunt uh, who came in the 80s through the prior policy, which was the FDM, the Foreign Domestic Movement Program, which became the Live-In Caregiver Program in the early 90s. Uh, and I have a, a cousin and another aunt who came through the LCP, the Live-In Caregiver Program. And, um, and so I've witnessed um, through my relatives, these women, um, the, you know, the, the precariousness 
uh, the racialization, you know, the very gendered types of care and expectations and representations of what it means to be Filipina in the Canadian context. Um, there is a kind of reduction often of Filipinaness to nanny that kind of permeates public consciousness around Filipinoness in, in Canada. Um, the experience of migration as well, including through channels like um, the caregiver program, um, requires, and this is a you know a, an effective policy, many years of family separation. Um, so you know families are split apart, um, and that's often naturalized as like that's just the process, right? That's just a thing that you need to endure. There is at the end of the tunnel the promise that you'll be able to bring family to Canada. Just endure it. I want to talk a little bit about the antidote to some of that loneliness and the ways in which the Filipino diaspora can find comfort in a city uh, when they are newcomers and how in a lot of big cities, and Vancouver's no different, there are these cultural enclaves that can become home for different ethnicities and different communities. In East Vancouver, the Joyce Collingwood neighborhood has often been called the city's Filipino heart. Dr. Katungal, I wonder if you could tell me about the significance of this place for Vancouver's Filipino community and moreover why its very existence is under threat. And Phoebe, of course, feel free to jump in. Let me tackle that question by talking personally about what Joyce Collingwood means to me and my family. When my uh, immediate family first moved to Canada, we lived you know, our first place was on Boundary Road on the Burnaby side. So straddling Vancouver and Burnaby. Uh, and we went to church at St. Mary's, which is at Joyce Collingwood. Right. Uh, that is the neighborhood where we found our footing um, as new immigrants to Canada. Um, you know, those grocery stores, um, those sarasari stores, the restaurants uh, are important kind of markers of our of our history, of our culture. Uh, you know, very practically speaking, it's where we got food, it's where we got chicheria, like these snacks, it's where we got Filipino newspapers, like hard copy newspapers. Uh, and very importantly, uh, and I cannot help but smile when I'm recalling this, it's where we got phone cards so that we can call family back home, right? Things that, you know, things have changed with uh, Zoom and, and, and Facebook and uh, uh, FaceTime and that kind of thing, right? But, you know, in 1999, when my family first moved to Canada, you phoned home. And because we were, you know, not well-to-do upon arrival, right, you try and find, you know, the bang for your buck through these phone cards, right? That is what the Joyce Collingwood neighborhood means to me, right? And to many people, right? Uh, that was, you know, 20 some years ago now. Um, but as new waves of Im immigrants, you know, come to Canada, right? These remain spaces where, you know, we are able to access very materially, things that are important to us as Filipinos. Food, for example, 
uh, you know, these kinds of things, right, are not just things, they have quite a lot of meaning, right? So often when we talk about the pressures faced by a neighborhood like Joyce Collingwood, it becomes solely about like, you know, their small businesses, other businesses will come up, right? But the meaning making and the supportive kind of qualities of these spaces often get, you know, thrown uh, out the window, right? So, you know, the, the neighborhood informally, you know, because of, there isn't like a Chinatown really for, for Filipinos, there isn't a, like as an established uh, enclave, um, but this comes close to one, right? Uh, people flock from all over to this neighborhood. Uh, and in the last year with the kind of pressures of redevelopment that this neighborhood is facing, right? It's become very clear just how important this neighborhood is, uh, not only to the local Filipino immigrant community, but also more broadly. I've seen stories that people from Kamloops and, and Kelowna and other parts of BC, when they come to Vancouver, they go to this neighborhood to be able to buy things, right? Right, that this is a place that provides people sustenance, both materially and in a sense that is more than that. Um, if it's okay, I'd also like to jump in and say, like, um, as a more recent uh, migrant coming into Canada, specifically Vancouver, Joy- the Joyce Collingwood neighborhood ha- feels like home. Like when you go into one of the restaurants like Plato Filipino, Papangas Cuisine, uh, also the Sari Sari store and K's Mart, um, it feels like I'm in Manila or my grandmother's uh, hometown. Um, I hear Tagalog being spoken. I respond back with my very awkward accent in Tagalog. Um, and it just feels like, it really feels like a piece of home. And uh, with a lot of folks who come to um, uh, those places, it's very close to the SkyTrain station, for one thing, um, the restaurant. And so it's super accessible. And also the food is, for Vancouver standards especially, like very affordable and very accessible. Um, and so just thinking about the loss of these spaces, like JP said, both culturally, but also very practically, like this is where we get food. It really breaks my heart as well, personally. Um, and I, the gentrification is a very complicated project. Um, they're building some condos in the area and what will be done with the uh, businesses is just quite unclear. Like, where will they go? Um, will there be space for them in the redevelopment, or can the redevelopment be uh, changed in order to include those businesses in the future? Or otherwise, um, it's just very up in the air right now, and the anxiety is quite a lot. I also want to talk a little bit about some community efforts that are happening in Vancouver. Um, I think it's really inspiring to see. And Phoebe, I know that you are particularly passionate about a few. I'd love to hear from the both of you about some ongoing collectives or organizations in the Vancouver area that some of our listeners might be interested in in connecting with or supporting. 
I guess definitely. Um, and actually, in relation to the Joyce Collingwood uh, organizing, I particularly want to give a shout out to some of the organizations who are working together to organize um, and uh, save the neighborhood. So uh, Sliced Mango Collective, Dulayan Diaspora Society, Collingwood Neighborhood House, the Vancouver Tenants Union, Pathara Society, the Southeast Asia Cultural Heritage Society, and the BC General Employees Union. These organizations, as well as a few individuals, um, including myself, are working together to um, organize and really show up for the neighborhood. Um, and yeah, I just made, wanted to make sure that their work is really highlighted, especially, I want to say, Sliced Mango Collective and Bulayan. They've just done so much um, for the neighborhood. Um, and Slice Mango Collective in particular, um, they um, they initially were an arts collective, like really just to, or not just, but to highlight um, the Latinx writing and artists and stuff like that. But they've really stepped up in such beautiful ways uh, for the Joyce Collingwood neighborhood. And it is inspiring and also just, it really makes you want to help and um, uh, join the effort to do that. Um, so I wanted to make sure that their names were mentioned um, here. Um, and some other organizations that uh, are really cool um, in Vancouver um, include, um, I wanted to mention NPC3, which is the National Philippine Canadian Cultural Center. Um, and they're doing a bunch of programming right now, highlighting various Filipinx artists, um, as well as having conversations um, about the, uh, the history of the Philippines and stuff like that. I believe um, yesterday, um, they had a conversation about uh, what does it mean to have like uh, uh, National Independence Day? Or what does this mean for decolonization and stuff like that? Um, and aside from these organizations, there are various like hometown associations, university associations, quite like you'd find uh, with other diasporas. Um, and also wanted to highlight these really cool organizations at UBC for UBC students listening. Um, there is Sulong which is a student group who organized um, around what it means to be Filipinx in the academy, um, in Vancouver, um, and so on. And they host these really cool um, sessions where they learn where they learn together about Filipino history, um, including Spanish colon uh, colonization, American imperialism, um, the um, uh, immigration to Canada and to other places. And I also wanted to highlight uh, the Philippine Study Series, which is another organization at UBC that host a lot of academic, particularly, events um, to do with Philippine studies and such. Phoebe, I hope you don't mind, but in, continu in continuing this thread on, on comfort and support, I'd love to read a few lines of your poetry. In December 2020, you wrote a piece called OK Lung, and in it, you write, Not everything will be fine, not every day will be sunny, not every person will be nice, not every dragon fruit will be purple. Change will be jarring, time will move on without you, and there will be no hand to guide you, no matter how many positive sticky notes you paste on your wall. But let there be grace for my mistakes, chances to make amends, opportunities to do better, moments to grow and grow and grow. Phoebe, I remember the first time that I came across these lines. It felt like a warm embrace. It's beautiful, and it made me wonder what was going through your mind when you wrote this, and also the beautiful way in which your poetry and putting it out into the world can create the sense of comfort for others. 
I wonder if you could tell me about that, how the idea of comfort plays into your work, if at all. Yes, sure. Um, Yeah, I remember, um, so I wrote this poem as part of a series of poems that I challenged myself to write throughout the month of December, like one for each day, which is more challenging than I thought it would be because finding the time to write and so on. But I remember I wrote this particular poem because I was a little bit stressed out about something I don't really remember exactly, but um, I needed something to reassure myself that I actually did learn a lot from um, like having graduated my master's and entering my first job, like I was in the process of learning a lot of things and all the adulting that comes with like growing up. Um, I think it's really a poem about growing up uh, because throughout my childhood, I moved around a lot as a kid. Um, I mentioned earlier that my dad uh, works in the foreign service for the Philippines. And so we moved around a lot and change was like a constant thing for me and learning to embrace that as I grow older and more changes happen um, is kind of what this poem is about I think I think it was more like I was trying to um, reassure myself and reassure whoever is reading this poem as well Um, and yeah I think in terms of like comfort playing into my poetry um, I think I'm at the stage of writing where uh, I write a lot of poems depending on what I'm thinking about um, currently, like uh, poems about uh, migration and about what I'm seeing right now under COVID and stuff like that. And one thing I've always hoped with the poetry that I write is that it will provide comfort to the person reading it. Um, and yeah, that's kind of what I just hope to do with the words that I write. I love that. It is minutes before midnight for the both of you. So I have one last question as we close out today's episode. The title of this podcast makes reference to a quote by Cornell West, and he powerfully reminds us that justice is just what love looks like in public. I like to close off every episode by asking guests what that means to them. What does love in public look like to you? I was thinking about this uh, earlier today, and I think... What I wanted to say was um, love in public, I think, looks like the care that we give and that we aspire to give to the people that we care about. And this includes our friends, our family, our loved ones and our communities. Um, And something that we've been talking a lot about today is um, for the Filipino community, especially here, I want to see my friends grow and thrive and just be shining stars out there in the world. And I think that's what love in public looks like for me, um, is that care um, that we want to give to each other and that we do share with one another and that keeps us warm and fed in a lot of different ways. I was you know, thinking about this Cornell West quote in relation to another quote uh, by one of my heroes, uh, the academic, the late Latinx academic, Jose Esteban Munoz, um, a a queer scholar who wrote uh, that, and I quote, the here and now is simply not enough. Um, And I'm thinking about that in relation to this quote by Cornel West about social justice being love performed in public. Uh, which to me is, you know, exists in parallel to um, uh, Jose Esteban Munoz's idea that queerness 
is a critique of the inadequacy of the here and now as the desire for a better future, right? And to me, social justice being love in public is the enactment in the now, a prefigurative politics uh, of a future that is supportive, that allows people not only to survive, but to thrive. Uh, and also, you know, that requires the naming of what is inadequate about the now, right? There is something about social justice requiring that tough love, right? The naming of things that might be and will be uncomfortable, challenging our often deeply held ideas about our societies, right? Our communities as a way to then proceed to imagine a different future, a future that is not tethered to what is inadequate about the now. So that's how I think about that Cornell West quote. Um, is very much about enacting right a collective um, that is premised on this you know ethic of care to echo to echo of what we said right but also this desire for a collective you know thriving into the future. I want to thank both of you for your precious time and energy and to all of our listeners thank you for tuning in. I'm Abril Sawarsa-Rivera, and this has been Love in Public. This podcast was brought to you by the Equity and Inclusion Office at the University of British Columbia. It was produced by Moses Caliboso. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Ben Robinson.